What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today in the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I explore one of the most influential music genres today, synth pop. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from Broken Bells, the collaboration between James Mercer of The Shins and DJ Danger Mouse. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. The news this week, Jim, is topped with the success story that Pandora, the Internet music service, has become. Remember, you know, the 2000s, 2000, 2001, all these promising Internet startups, everybody was going to make zillions and zillions of dollars. Well, one by one, a lot of those Internet startups fell by the wayside. They, they could attract an audience, but they couldn't figure out how to monetize that audience. Pandora has been the exception. Unlike, say, Spiral Frog and Napster, they have become a huge success in the Internet era, one of the first big ones. It took a while. It took about a decade. But here they are with an audience that has 48 million users signing on to their site for 11 and a half hours a month, generating $50 million in revenue last quarter, the first profitable quarter in Pandora's history, now projected to make $100 million this year. Man. So the, the service has gone through the roof and has become a go-to site on the Internet for people to discover new music. They have over 700,000 songs that they are making available to the public. So here we have it, a legit music service on the Internet that is finally making money. It's nice to be able to finally discuss some good music business news, Greg. That is the song This Too Shall Pass, a single from the new album by OK Go, the formerly Chicago-based pop band that now is really a national act. There's an extraordinary video for this song, Greg, and the story we're going to talk about is about videos, really. OK Go, you'll recall, in 2006 was a just-fine power-pop band that was not on a lot of people's radar. They were not selling a lot of records for Capitol Records. They didn't have much of a career. Then they made this silly but wonderful video, the four band members moving in place on these treadmills, a fantastic piece of choreography, Here It Goes Again. It took off on YouTube. It was the first big viral video success we've seen in the music world, viewed a couple of million times, eventually 
50 million times. What an extraordinary story. Then it comes time for the band to want to do the same thing again. They've made some really cool new clips for the new album, and EMI Capital says, no, you, you can't do that. You can't put them up for free on the web. Damien Kulash, the band leader, in what was really a very gutsy move, wrote a very well-done op-ed piece for the New York Times late in February. It was called Who's Tube, a play on YouTube, where he was pointing out the idiocy of the major labels trying to stop something that actually made them a lot of money and made OK Go, you know, a career act. After we did the interview, it turns out that OK Go has now split officially from Capital EMI. They have formed their own independent label, Paracadute. It's Italian for parachute. And now, you know, big news. I mean, here's this band that did something on the internet that made everybody money, and they've shown us a way where musicians can move forward without the major label system. Yes, they absolutely have. They are one of the few bands that seems like they've had an orchestrated business plan from the very start. They have negotiated this internet era expertly for the last five or six years. It almost seemed too well-conceived. So we asked Damien when he was in the studio recently whether this was part of some big master plan. It definitely wasn't a master plan. I think, you know, we've never particularly looked at our videos as sort of like Machiavellian marketing. They're, they're just creative projects of the bands. And really the, the blessing with, to, with that record in 2005 was that our label stopped caring very much about, about promoting us. So they didn't really get in the way of us doing things the way we wanted to. By second record, we, you know, we sort of just made those things for fun. And they, we didn't have any idea sort of what internet video could be or would become. We just, I think we just got very lucky, to tell you the truth. Tell us about the first video you made. It was in your sister's backyard, right? The first one that went viral. It was my backyard, but my Your sister backyard. did choreograph it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. See, your sister's the one with the master plan is the real story here. <laughs> no, actually, you know, the, the very first choreographed dance we did, back when we were living in Chicago, we were invited to be on Chicagogo, the, the fantastic public access TV show. Yeah, um, we, we and, need to explain that. It is this weird institution in Chicago where little kids, you bring your four- or five-year-old, and you dress up like Twiggy circa 1966, and you dance to silly music. Yes, and, and they have bands come and quote-unquote play, but of course they don't have any, any way to record the audio. So you are obliged to lip-sync, and, and being the sort of just-out-of-college contrarians, we, we, we felt like if we were going to lip-sync, we were like, we're going to swing for the fences. And so we, we actually rented a bunch of, of like in-sync videos and stuff and came up with what we thought of as the most sort of like ludicrous boy band dance we could. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at the time, I, I was actually working at NPR at the time. And so I asked all of the sort of names I could find in the building at WBEZ where all of NPR happens in Chicago. And so I asked Ira Glass and Peter Sagel and Gretchen Helfrich. They'd be our backing band so that they, people would finally see what they look like and we would and we would be, you know, dancing around in front of them. Mm-hmm. So it was this really totally absurd. Uh, it was just sort of a joke, I guess. And um there was a sort of like joy and exuberance to it that was really infectious and um, and Ira of, of This American Life asked us to then go on tour with him as his sort of backing band when they were doing live shows I guess now eight years ago or something um, mm. so we started doing that dance on stage just because it was so unexpected and so fun to see a band just like drop their instruments and break into dance <laughs> so we got known for doing this dance thing and and when our, when we put out our second record we were like well, we can't you know we obviously aren't going to keep dancing to a song from you know from five years ago so we decided to come up with a newer crazier dance for that record and that's when we brought my sister in because she was a mm. professional ballroom dancer so really a professional ballroom dancer 
she was living in Florida at the time, and, and I had just moved to Los Angeles, and she came out for a week and choreographed this dance with us. And it, it was a, a practice video in my backyard that became the, the sort of internet sensation. And, like, we promoted it to no one at first. I mean, it was just like we, we just gave it to our friends online. And someone posted it on something called iFilm, I think it was. It was, it was pre-YouTube. And, mm-hmm. and a month or two later, having not really thought that much about it, someone sent a link back going, like, do you realize this has been viewed 300,000 times? <laughs> Which is about as many records as we had sold globally at that point. And so we decided we'd make another another video like that, sort of as a, just as a gift to those people. We were like, it, it's those sort of core fans. It's the people who, who you have a, a direct connection with, the people who like don't go, don't need to be promoted to, and don't need your major label, and don't need the sort of big distribution system, but actually come and find you, and you can communicate with directly. So we went to my sister's house in, in Florida to make the treadmill thing. We didn't tell our label. We didn't, you know, we didn't even tell our management company. So we just sort of went off the map for for ten days and made this thing. And, uh, <laughs> so, so the, a million ways becomes this viral hit. You're totally not expecting it. What was the record company's reaction to all of this? I mean, were they aware of the fact that you were getting these hundred thousands of hits on a million ways, and then you know, many many more times that with "Here It Goes Again." How did they respond to this guerrilla campaign that you were doing on the net? Well, there was a year between those two events, and it was a complete 180 um, from the label. When we took the clip for A Million Ways, the backyard dancing clip, into the label the first time, we showed it to the person who is then the head of digital media, and, and the response was, if this gets out, you're sunk. <laughs> That's like a, that is a direct quote. So why did he respond in that way? Was it because it was viewed as amateurish? There wasn't enough money spent on it? It was a joke that nobody was going to get? I mean, what exactly was it about it that made him think it was going to destroy your career? Rock bands have to look cool. You know, like ah. rock bands have to look really cool. And that, like, it, it's definitely sort of before there were many sort of like self-made internet bands or anything like that. And there's there's also our label in particular. There just was uh, that particular regime was really scared. It was sort of homophobic and and worried about sort of nerds and and I mean we just had to be cooler. Um, hmm. This is sort of like the last vestige of people who sat in big leather chairs thinking that they made the things that they were selling. You know, right. I mean, the, when the entire world w- was sort of in awe of the Strokes, then these guys had to be selling the Strokes. And so they had to sort of, whatever bands they had on their label had to be Strokesy. And the Strokes wouldn't dance in their backyard. Those dudes are cool. You know? <laughs> How long was it, Damien, before somebody at the record company seeing the viral success of A Million Ways and then Here It Goes Again, which is 10 times greater even, before they like took credit for it? About a year, year and a half. That when <laughs> when when the um, when we put the treadmill video on. Oh, sorry, at, we were on tour when our guitar tech was like, "Hey guys, do you know that your treadmill videos uh, online?" And we're like, "What?" Like we'd been sitting on it for like six, eight months. Maybe we we're just like, "There's no re- need for a new video right now." And we go online, and it, it's and our label, without telling us, had posted it to stupidvideos.com. <laughs> 
They were like, guys, it's a really big rollout. I mean, stupid videos gets, you know, a million hits a day. And it's like, but it's called stupid videos. You know, like (laughs) you are the people who who are worried about branding us. Luckily, it got taken. We we managed to get it taken down pretty much immediately. And a week or two later, we put it up on YouTube and it was viewed a million times in the first day. And MTV added it a week later or something. And on a dime, the record label suddenly was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And um, we weren't, for a while, we weren't allowed to do interviews with like really major publications without somebody from the label around because they were really scared <laughs> about my big mouth. And um. So these, these gorilla videos, here it goes again, viewed something like 50 million times now or something like that. And yet your company was taking credit for these. Now things have changed again. What's going on now where it, it appears that uh, the, the company now is pulling this kind of wonderful self-made video viral process away from you and saying we want to control everything? I've Obviously, it's easy for me to sit here and be snarky about record labels. They're an easy target. The truth is that there are lots of things that labels are actually good for, and what they need in order to do those things is money. And you know, there's just not a lot of record selling anywhere. Um, so they're trying to find money in anything they own. You know, it's mm-hmm. like what used to be these incredible free advertisements that the band was making are now these incredible products that the band is making. So mm-hmm. in the last four years, there's been a, a marked shift not just at our label, but sort of worldwide, where people stopped seeing videos as advertisements and started seeing them as, as you know, creative products. And the funny thing is that that's how we've always seen what, what we, you know, the videos, we, we've always made our, our videos and seen them as our own babies, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. But now, of course, that there's no revenue coming from anywhere else, they sort of have to like, they're like, well, if people are watching these things millions of times, why aren't we getting paid for that? And so they... So what has happened specifically is that the labels have worked out deals with YouTube and YouTube now pays them a you know a fraction of a penny each time their songs are streamed on YouTube's site because that that's where YouTube can do their embedded advertising. But when a video is embedded on someone else's site like a blog or a fan's site or you know even the web the band's own website those YouTube payments don't get made. I, I don't know the the terms of the deal but for some reason they don't get made and there's a lot of suspicions as to why that is but so basically the labels generally, or at least our label, disables the Im- embedding feature so that our fans can't post our videos on their blogs or on their own sites, or, and we can't post them on our site. It's sort of incredible. Like that, that you know, overnight uh, views of our treadmill video went down 90% because mm-hmm. all of the bloggers who had it up on their blog, just, it just suddenly disappeared one day. So you to know? make this um, clear, the, the record label disabled the tool that enabled you to break through and reach the largest audience of your career? The the labels and YouTube sort of combined. And, you know, as you can imagine, I'm a huge fan of YouTube. But, I mean, really what it is is that t- together they're sort of looking at this going, like, where, how, how are we going to get money out of this thing? I mean, everybody loves it, but it costs us and we mm-hmm. don't get paid for it, you know? Right, right. Now, how has uh, the, the latest video been handled? This too shall pass. It's uh, already made a big splash. A lot of people are talking about it. It's a, a hugely inventive video for people who haven't seen it it's several minutes long watching this rube goldberg type device (laughs) being launched in a warehouse where you guys end up getting paintballed at the end it's pretty hilarious we basically have a whole lot of things we want to do we have like this sort of like short list of like fun projects and we kind of use our the videos as an excuse to do them i mean there's no there really are no other it sort of feels like a cheat it's like when when can you just be like you know what i'd like to do for two months is just go sit in a warehouse and play with marbles. You know? <laughs> um, 
But that's the great thing about MTV losing their stranglehold over the video world and the internet picking up the slack is that that anything that is interesting exists. You know, it's it's like it's out there. It does its it does its job. You don't need it. You don't have to be selling skateboard sneakers to sort of justify the existence of these projects. So, mm-hmm. so um, the Rube Goldberg machine. Really, what happened was I watched a collection of Japanese. Rube Goldberg machines. It's actually a show called Pythagoras Switch, which which opens every episode with a tiny Rube Goldberg machine, and they're just genius. They're amazing. And there's like a an 18 or 20 minute reel of these you can watch online. And I just watched that reel over and over again, along with with our record um, and and the people who were designing the machine with us, and just tried to figure out which which of the songs sort of seemed to fit the feeling of of these this type of interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, the the more upbeat songs, the machinery looked kind of slow and boring, and like the song was really at odds with what you were watching. And the sort of slower songs felt like the whole thing made him feel kind of jokey somehow or something. And this one thing just it, uh, this song just felt very celebratory and like it kind of fit the idea. Uh, Damien, this incredible op-ed piece in the New York Times mid-February, uh, kind of criticizing your record company for the YouTube thing and, and not uh, allowing the viral spread of this new video for This Too Shall Pass. Album number three of The Blue Color of the Sky is just out. Kind of gutsy to be taking shots at the industry in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could play it safer. <laughs> <laughs> um, your publicist didn't say, uh, Damien, uh, maybe not. I'm sure this will sound as cocky as it is, but um, I, I would put a lot more money on my band existing five years from now than than my record label. <laughs> yeah, EMI's uh, been in the news lately for uh, how much financial trouble it's been in. Well, I mean, and just in general, it's nothing nothing against the people at EMI. You know, it's it's not specifically our label. It's just a model that's just outmoded. You know, yeah. I mean, where. Um, uh, it really, I mean, this is oversimplified a little bit, but they really, the distribution system that they that they existed to facilitate, it it got leapfrogged overnight. You know, I mean, the, the internet has made that completely uh, redundant. Well, thanks, Damien. We appreciate uh, your input on this issue that I think is uh, not going to go away anytime soon. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Definitely not. Thanks for having me. We'll be back on Sound Opinions with a discussion of one of music's most influential genres, synth-pop. Plus, Greg and I will review the new electro-pop record from Broken Bells. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and here's a first, I think, for this show. That is the music of Wendy Carlos, the 1969 blockbuster synthesizer album, <laughs> Switched on Bach. What a radical idea at that time. The then brand new Moog synthesizer employed to deliver classical music. Why are we playing that historic curiosity? We decided to dig deep, as we do occasionally on Sound Opinions, into a genre of music that is uh, often cited. We drop the name all the time, but not much understood and sometimes wrongly maligned. I'm talking about synth pop. Mm -hmm. There has been a major revival of that genre as an influence in the last couple of years. We keep saying synth pop this, synth pop that. We thought it was about time we step back and explain to the listeners what exactly this music is. Absolutely, Jim. I mean, we've had a number of bands, new bands, independent bands, cutting-edge bands that have had major hits with a synth-pop sound. Owl City's got uh, one of the number one singles in the U.S. for the last few months with a synth-pop sound. We had the French pop band Phoenix on our show last year exploring the use of synthesizers. Passion Pit has had major hits with synth-pop-type sounds. MGMT had a huge breakthrough hit in 2007 with the song Kids. Other groups, LCD Sound System, Goldfrap, the Postal Service, Junior Boys, The Knife, even the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah is a band that uh, celebrated for its guitar sound on its third album went heavily in the synth-pop direction. Let's start at the very beginning as we look at this genre, and we'll take people through its evolution into the present. The Moog synthesizer, the analog synthesizer, came into being in the late 60s and was originally a very arty instrument. You know, the Beatles used it on Abbey Road, but it was confined more toward people like like Wendy Carlos. You know, it cost a lot of money. It was big and unwieldy. Yeah. Some of them were the size of like a refrigerator. <laughs> you ever see Keith Emerson in pictures of uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Literally, he has a wall behind him, mm-hmm. and that is a Moog synthesizer. The original instruments, as I said, were analog, and they were, they were hard to carry around. Only the very rich, progressive rock bands could use them, and they employed them essentially as like alien spacecraft coming down in the middle of a song. Two names we drop far too often on Sound Opinions, but I think we should be forgiven because they really are progenitors of much modern electronic music. Kraftwerk, the Mm -hmm. German band who, it is said, did for the analog synthesizer what Chuck Berry did for the electric guitar, and Brian Eno, who was as much philosopher as artist, using synthesizers to say, wait a minute, rather than duplicating the sound of an orchestral instrument, which, let's face it, these weird electronic machines don't really do that well, let's see what kind of sounds they make on their own that can only be described as a synthesizer. I think 
those are the forerunners of synth pop. But the genre, as we really want to talk about it, came into being pretty much mid to late seventies, concurrent with at first, and then and then following up on punk rock. You know, mm-hmm. punk rock explosion happens, and it's guitar, bass, and drums. Followed shortly thereafter by what the industry would call new wave, where we're starting to see the synthesizer perhaps as the dominant instrument in the band, more so than the guitar. I think that this is due in part to a real technological revolution. As I said, the analog synthesizers were hard to control. They were difficult to carry. All of a sudden, in the late 70s, the Yamaha DX7 comes into being. This is the first real easy portable digital synthesizer where hitting one button, you can get the sound you want as opposed to twirling 15 knobs on a big old analog machine. It was also polyphonic. A lot of those analog synthesizers were monophonic. They played one note Mm -hmm. at a time. When Wendy Carlos did her version of Bach, she was playing one note at a time and overdubbing the second note and overdubbing the third and the fourth to make the chords. Boy, talk about a pain in the neck, right? right? All of a sudden, here was this nice, easy, portable machine. It was about the size of a regular keyboard that you could carry around. They were expensive initially, but you could play them like you would a piano, except they didn't really sound organic still. They had this kind of unique, reedy, breathy tone that I think is the dominant sound of of all of what we'll call synth pop in this examination. There's no doubt about it. The cheap technology was a huge factor in this, Jim, and it tied in with the punk era, the idea that, you know, do it yourself, do it on the cheap, do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. So the fact that you could buy a synthesizer, a portable synthesizer, for like a couple hundred bucks in 1978 was a huge change for a lot of these groups and a lot of these artists. The Lindrum coming along, the first programmable drum machine that had percussive textures on it. These were all huge innovations that allowed basically anyone to make an entire record in their bedroom. One of the innovators in this area was Daniel Miller, a guy who went to film school, you know, another one of those art school era English rockers who was kind of bored with what he heard from conventional rock bands, but was much more interested in these German innovators like Can and Noy and Kraftwerk and what they were doing, but didn't really see a way how to do it himself until the punk era came along. He was able to buy a cheap Korg 700S synthesizer and a four-track tape recorder in the late 70s, inspired by what was happening in England at the time with the Sex Pistols and the Clash and those types of bands, but making his own version of punk rock with electronic instruments. He created this fanciful group. He called it the normal. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start making records in my bedroom with that synthesizer and with that recorder. When you talk about Keith Emerson and his huge Moog synthesizers, the sound was orchestral. They were aspiring to this symphonic type of grandeur. We're going to sound like a classical orchestra all wrapped into one instrument. The new technology and Daniel Miller weren't interested in that. What they were trying to do was create something a lot more sparse and a lot more brutal, aligned more towards the guitar-based punk rock they were hearing at the time. And you can hear it all come together, the start of that synth-pop revolution coming together in the song that I'm going to play next. It was the debut single from Daniel Miller's group, The Normal. He put it out on his own label. He created a fanciful title for his own label, Mute Records. 
on the back of that single, he put an address. And within days of this record coming out and becoming a an unexpected chart sensation in the UK, he got all sorts of cassettes in the mail from <laughs> yeah. all these <laughs> aspiring synth poppers and ended up putting out records by bands like Depeche Mode, Yazoo, Fad Gadget, basically the genesis of the synth pop revolution in the UK with this one guy. And here's where it all started. The song Warm Leatherette, the debut single from the Mute Records label by Daniel Miller and his group The Normal on Sound Opinions. Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette See the breaking glass In the underpass See the breaking glass In the underpass Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Hear the crushing steel Feel the steering wheel Hear the crushing steel Feel the steering wheel Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette That is Warm Leatherette by The Normal, uh, which is really just Daniel Miller on Mm -hmm. Sound Opinions. We are discussing the flourishing of synth pop in the late 70s and the 80s and how that's coming out in the wash as a big influence these days. Uh, Greg, I remember meeting Daniel Miller when he was putting out Wires records and and just what an interesting character. Never what you'd ever think is a rock star. Yeah. And and there was a certain amount of punk-inspired anti-posing in the early days of synth pop. If you recall the single of Warm Leatherette, it's two of those crash test dummies, right? right? The genre initially, I think, was distinguished by several things. It was like, yes, we are using electronic, quote-unquote, artificial instruments. We're going to exploit that Mm -hmm. instead of apologize for it. Yes, we have machines playing the drums. We're going to celebrate the mechanical rhythms rather than try to get them to imitate humans. And generally, we're going to like plastic instead yeah. of, instead of uh, you know, organic materials. Otherwise, we're going to make songs like the Beatles. There's mm-hmm. still pop songs underneath. Right. We're just taking this new approach. Somehow we drifted off too far. Communicate like distant stars. 
Now, for sure, Greg, as synth-pop developed and became one of the dominant and best-selling sounds in the 80s, there were many bands that retained a lot of that art-rock progressive kind of feel, whether you're talking about Thomas Dolby or Devo or Depeche Mode. And then there were other bands that just were, were pop bands that happened to use synthesizers, ABC or AHA, Erasure, Eurythmics, Yaz, or a group that would ultimately be best known as fashion models, Duran Duran. There was no doubt there was a transition from this very punk-oriented, very severe, spartan, abrasive sound of the early synth-pop era into a more of a pop feel, more of a, a warmer sound, a more orchestral sound, a sound that was more about uh, appealing to a broader audience rather than this underground punk aesthetic. It was abrasive by design. When you think about those early groups like the normal Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, Gary Newman, we cannot have a discussion of synth-pop without mentioning Gary Newman, a punk rocker, a punk rock guitar player in a punk rock band in London at the height of the punk era. And, and in retrospect now, you can see him kind of ripping mm. off Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk sang about the Autobahn in Germany, right. and Gary Newman has a hit with Cars. Yes. Preceding that, he was in this group, Tubeway Army, and sort of wrote this unintentional anthem for the movement, Our Friends Electric, mm-hmm. basically saying, I have a lot more in common with machines than I do with human beings. And it was this whole notion of this alien androgyny, being disassociated from everything around you so that you relate better to these machines than you do to the human race in a lot of ways. And that was a very punk attitude to have. have some thoughts on this as a keyboard player who was coming of age at this time. I remember being a young drummer, and the player mags, you know, like guitar player and, and modern drummer, were, were full of these rabid debates. Pro-drum machine, anti-drum machine. Yeah. Nobody was in the middle. If you love drum machines, then you hated all the drumming stood for. If you were pro-synthesizer, you were not a real piano player. Yeah. You know, now everybody looks at them as, well, they're just all instruments on my palate. There was a 
huge dividing line, Jim. I, I remember it very well that if you played keyboards, you were somehow more fey. You were, you were, you know, feminine. You were not a true rocker man because you didn't play a guitar. There was a lot of those associations. There were songs written about synthesizers. There was punk rock bands proudly proclaiming on the liner notes to their albums, no synthesizers used in the making of this record. And not only punk bands. That was the saying on the Queen records, if you remember. You know, big classic rockers, no synthesizers. Yeah, like there was something wrong with it. But, you know, what was beautiful about the Daniel Millers of the world is that he completely embraced this idea. They liked the fact that they were outside of this mainstream of this testosterone-fueled rock. You recall in America, you know, at the time, the mainstream rock was dominated by bands like Van Halen and Motley Crue, bands, again, that had little use for, for synthesizers and openly mocked it. But I think what transitioned this underground art form that began, you know, in the U.K. into this huge mainstream phenomenon where you started seeing huge mainstream hits coming out of it was the vocal quality. You know, on those early synth pop songs, it was all about the technology. It was all about sounding as alien as possible. But when you had the introduction of singers like Mark Almond of Soft Cell and Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics and Alison Moyet with Yazoo and later on her solo career, you, you saw this sort of warm-blooded aspect to it. There was a mm-hmm. human side to it. If I wait for just a second more I know I'll forget what I came here for My head was so full of things to say But as I open my lips All my words slip And I think illustrated perfectly with with Human League. When Human League uh, hired those two teenagers, Joanne Catherell and Susan Ann Sully, who were spotted at a dance club just on a whim, saying, you know, you're going to be the singers in my band. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bringing those two in, that was the turning point for Human League, and I think in many ways the turning point for the entire genre, turning it into this mega mainstream phenomenon in the early to mid-'80s. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, they're sort of the poster children of everything that people love and hate about synth-pop, a manufactured band playing artificial instruments, and yet, gee, guess what? They have these incredible songs that stand the test of time. You know, everybody knows the super breakthrough hit, of course, don't you want me? But there are great songs throughout the Human League's recording career, in particular that third album, Dare, a point of interest. This was the album that was playing on the stereo when Lester Bangs died. Hmm. There's a song called Seconds that I'm going to play that show how deep Human League's uh, songs go. This is a song about an assassination, and you're not really sure which one it is. Is it Kennedy? Is it, is it, is it Reagan at that point, the attempt, uh, about how a second of your time can change someone's life if you have 
the wrong nefarious intent. Not what we think of a synth-pop band in a John Hughes movie, for example. He loved this music, and, and it populated all of his movies. You know, not what you think that kind of band is going to sing about, and yet here it is, this heavy, deep, and beautiful song. Here's the Human League with seconds on Sound Opinions. was seconds by the human league greg and i love that song and i really think it illustrates all the sonic hallmarks of classic synth pop the mechanical rhythms the the walls of synthetic plastic sound merging really nicely with those human vocals those sounds i think you can hear in a long list of groups that are taking them in in very new directions today and very different directions whether you're talking about the killers and mgmt or goldfrap and larue phoenix 
Hot Chip, Metric, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, or Passion Pit, who had that huge hit with Sleepyhead, which I think is a pretty direct line from Human League. concludes our discussion of synth pop but if you want to pick it up and make a comment give us a call on our hotline 888-859-1800 you can also email interact at soundopinions.org or connect to us on facebook and twitter we're going to be back in a minute on sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media with a review of the new two-man supergroup broken bells Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called The High Road from the new self-titled album by Broken Bells. Greg, this is yet another supergroup. We've been lousy with supergroups lately. <laughs> Brian Burton, better known as Danger Mouse, the auteur behind the Grey album, half of Gnarls Barkley, last heard producing Beck's Modern Guilt, and uh, his partner here, James Mercer, leader of the heartstring-tugging jangle pop band and Natalie Portman favorites, The Shins. <laughs> 
an unlikely pairing, for sure. Those two guys getting together, both of them are stretching, I think, far outside their comfort zones. But we're going to come back with our review, our thoughts on this album, after we play a song. This is called The Ghost Inside. Again, it's James Mercer of The Shins and Brian Burton of Gnarls Barkley and Danger Mouse and everything else on Sound Opinions. The Ghost Inside on Sound Opinions from the self-titled debut album by Broken Bells, the new collaboration between Danger Mouse, a.k.a. Brian Burton, and James Mercer of The Shins. It gives you a good sense of where these guys are going. I've never heard Mercer sing quite like that, that falsetto uh, vocal that he's bringing to that particular track, that soul element. And you also hear the more funky beats that uh, Danger Mouse is concocting there. So these guys are trying to find some new territory, some new common ground that they hadn't explored before. What's fascinating to me about these two guys is that they are minimalists in their own way. They are pop craftsmen who don't really tolerate excess of any kind. When you listen to a Shins track, it's almost perfectly crafted, and sometimes yeah. almost too perfect. And ditto for a lot of Burton's projects. He takes all the fat out and goes right for the gold. He loves those melodies. And these guys, when they do get together, you're thinking great things. There's going to be some really cool stuff happening. And on the first half of this record, i got to say, it's one fine track after another. They all kind of sit in the same kind of mid-tempo area. There's a little bit more of that funk, as we said, that you don't really quite expect. In the second half, it sort of slows down a little bit. There's a couple of tracks that are kind of disappointing to me. There's only 11 tracks here, 38 minutes. The tracks have a sweet-like feel to them. There's three, four, five parts in these songs. They could have been much longer stretched out with solos. And I love the fact that they keep them down to that three, three-and-a-half-minute length. As I said, it does slow down a little bit, so the perfect pop songs don't keep flowing. 
But overall, this is a pretty strong effort. I think these guys are going to stretch themselves even more if they happen to do a second Elm together, and that's the one I'm really looking forward to. But this is a promising start. I'm going to have to give this a buy it. I think, Greg, that you're suffering lately from, A, drinking too much coffee and being too speedy, and B, a little bit of attention (laughs) deficit disorder, because I don't see where this album falls off. I think it's pretty much a perfect beginning-to-end pop gem, a collection of wonderful pop songs. Yeah. You mentioned Mercer stretching out of his comfort zone and going for the falsetto vocals at one extreme and also kind of going for a deeper growl at some other points. But just as important is Danger Mouse giving up the sampler and playing a large array of live instruments, including some wonderfully wheezy old school organ and keyboards and some ambient synthesizers that obligatory Brian Eno drop here could well have come from another green world. It's a different way for both of them to make a record and I think that it really paid off. But That having been said, the sound is wonderful. It's the songs. It's a great collection of pop songs that really grab you and stick with you. I don't think the album falls off. You gave it a buy it, but you were complaining. My buy it is much more enthusiastic, but it's still two buy it's at the end of the day. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have the privilege of once again attending the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, and we're going to come back with a report to tell you about the new bands that you can't live without. Oh, our favorite show of the year. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out, Greg. Robin Lynn is one of our producers. If she was a synthesizer, she would be a Prophet 5. <laughs> Jason Saldana is our other producer. He, of course, is a mini mode. And our fearless leader, <laughs> our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's a Mellotron. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Sean out in beautiful Oakland, California. I was just listening to the podcast of this week's episode and wanted to respond to the note about the revenue list for 2009. You know, you talk about making money, but the reality is I'm not sure it's that simple that touring makes money. And just thinking about you 2 show, $109 million in revenue, but they had to tote that set around. They had a staff of presumably dozens of people that they had to stick in hotels every night. And, of course, they're only taking about half the gate at the box office. I would bet that if you want to talk about making money, most of the top money makers, happiest people, the ones with the biggest houses after this year, are actually people who don't make that list, like the Beatles and Mariah Carey. You know, the goal of making profit is to do as little work as you can and get as much money as you can for it. The Beatles hired a very small staff to repackage or remaster their recordings and license them to Electronic Arts. Done. Many millions of dollars for not much work. Mariah Carey, licensing her name all over the place. Without really knowing, I bet those guys made more money than you two last year. Anyway, keep doing what you do. Thanks so much. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is Dave King from Brooklyn. Who told you guys that Rikers Island was a hellhole? 
I mean, uh, it, it's been 30 years since I've had any personal experience with it, but I know people have been there recently. The reason Lil Wayne pled guilty was so he could go to Rikers Island because they guaranteed him no more than a one-year sentence, which means you can do the time in Rikers Island. If he was going to do more than a year and went to an upstate prison, that would be a hellhole. Rikers Island is pretty nice. Half the corrections officers are going to be fans of his and from the same New York neighborhood. He would have a very easy time. He's not going to be with murderers or killers. He's going to be with people that will be out in under a year. So please don't call Rikers Island a hellhole. You're going to be in jail. Rikers Island is not a bad place. <laughs> Take it easy. You guys love the show. This is Rick from New York. I was saddened by your Mark Linkus obituary and appreciated that in tribute you played a song from the Danger Mouse Sparkle Horse collaboration, Dark Night of the Soul. I don't know if the dispute with EMI over that album's release contributed to Linkus's suicide, but I thought Dark Night of the Soul was one of the best albums of 2009, and it's criminal that this album hasn't seen official release. I think you can add Dark Night of the Soul to Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, Fiona Apple's Extraordinary Machine, Lily Allen's All Right Still, as evidence of how screwed up the record industry has become in the digital era that good music sometimes has to be leaked and clamored by fans before the labels are prodded to belatedly put it out. The only thing I would quarrel with in your Mark Linkus tribute was your choice of songs from Dark Night of the Soul. I, I understand the sentiment behind playing... Grim Augury for its Vic Chestnut collaboration, but I've been blown away by Just War, the one with Griff Rees, and think more of your listeners who haven't yet heard Dark Knight of the Soul would seek it out if you didn't play Just War. Thank you very much. Just War, Just War, more messages to give us your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media